This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. Before I begin, I got to talk about a mistake that I made last week. I never have a problem admitting mistakes. I do just want to clarify them and make sure I get the right info out. Uh, apparently, the Warrior 64 Kickstarter campaign posted an update a few weeks after it had gone live, showing an installation video that showed a kit that was very reminiscent of the N64 RGB kit that Tim Worthington had posted on his site many years ago, long before his current kit, um, and it is a complicated installation. So the website and the Kickstarter campaign still says plug and play in the title. It still says plug and play in the first uh, description of it, and they still talk about how they wanted this as a solution because there's no plug and play RGB solution. So it is extremely misleading. There were pictures of circuit boards on the original page when it was first uploaded, uh, but they still always had mentioned plug and play, which really was super confusing for me. Um, it's 100% my fault that I didn't go back and reread the Kickstarter. I'll definitely never make that mistake again. Uh, the explanation as to why I didn't do so is because I read it so many times when it first came out because I didn't understand how something could be plug and play and require installation like this. Um, and so it, I guess you could just call that laziness on my part. So my bad. Uh, doesn't really change the conclusion that I came to uh, last week in that, you know, if you backed this Kickstarter, which is already funded, uh, so if you backed this Kickstarter because you wanted one of the controllers or you wanted the case, then awesome. It's probably exactly what you'd expected. Um, if you had backed it with the completed kits that come with the N64 motherboard and HDMI out, you might be a little disappointed to know that based on the installation of this kit, there is no RGB output. It's the standard N64 outputs plus HDMI. Um, and based on the chips that they've used in the past, that's probably not going to be the best HDMI solution. But I mean, you should always have realistic expectations for stuff like this, and you're still at least getting a complete N64 that still works with composite and S-Video, no problem. However, if you were one of the people who purchased the kits, which there weren't too many, I think there were less than 100 total, but you may have been misled into thinking you were getting a plug-and-play kit, which really stinks. Um, you know, there's nothing you could do about this stuff. Kickstarter absolutely does not care at all. Everybody on the planet could report it as, hey, this is plug-and-play, but it's not. They're not. As long as they get paid, they don't care at all. They will do nothing to help us. So, you know, it's just the way it is. You know, I guess hate the, hate the game, not the player. I don't know. But, um, you know, and uh, funny enough, after consistently responding to every single email I had. I emailed them and said, hey, watch this week's podcast. That's my thoughts on all of this stuff. Please tell me if I'm wrong. Please tell me if I've if this is more than just, you know, a misleading Kickstarter. Please let me know. And for the first time in months, they've stopped responding to me. So you all could make your own conclude or come to your own conclusions on what you think that's all about. Uh, it is very obvious to me what's going on here. Um, and I just, I kind of hope that everybody else gets it as well. But anyway, uh, sorry to start this off on a weird note, but I, I have to make 
corrections when I make mistakes like this. And I make mistakes every week. You know, sometimes I say 3.41 instead of 3.14 and stuff like that. You know, I'll leave a, uh, I'll leave a posted comment or a pinned comment. I mean, you know, I'll post on social media, whatever. But I felt like this was kind of a bigger mistake. And, uh, I, you know, everybody deserved to hear what it really was. And hey, your opinion could differ. You could say, hey, no, they were very clear. They posted a video that showed it being installed. That's enough for me. I like it. That's cool. We don't have to agree, but I at least have to get the right info out for you to make whatever decision you're going to make on this. Next up, the Fenrir Optical Drive Emulator has just posted a new firmware update that adds a save RAM backup feature. Now, it's only a backup feature at the moment. Set is looking into a restore feature as well. But I wanted to talk about it because I do think there's a bunch of people out there that might want to back up their Saturn saves onto an SD card to be used in emulation or just to back them up to have them at a future time. I kind of went back and forth with this and thought, you know, do I hold off on this post until there's also a restore? But I talked to the other writers and they all agreed like, no, this is definitely a cool feature. You know, there's a lot of people out there that might want to do their backup on it. So at the moment, it's it's not something that you could use to back up and restore everything based on like if your battery dies on your Saturn. Uh, but just the fact that there's the ability to back stuff up at all is very cool. So uh, hopefully, you know, there's going to be more updates soon. Sed's been punching away at this thing and has been posting updates on his Twitter uh, showing that, you know, this is out there and also that 21 pin Saturns are working. There's no product yet, but at least they're still out there trying to expand the product and, and add more features and stuff. So it's it's always very, very cool to me when I see developers post features after a product's been sold that they absolutely don't have to, and they do anyway, and I don't know, I think it's awesome. So please keep up the good work, and any Fenrir users that want to back up their save games, definitely get to this free update and give it a try. Smoke Monster just posted a really great article about how hackers have just jailbroken the Oculus Quest 2. And while at the moment it doesn't directly pertain to retro gamers, the total repercussions of something like this absolutely does. So the short overview is that Facebook, which now owns Oculus, has released the Oculus Quest 2, a VR helmet, that requires you to stay logged in to an active Facebook account in good standing in order to use it. And they hold you by a very weird set of privacy and tracking rules that that alone is kind of creepy. Um, and it essentially means that you don't own the hardware. You bought hardware that allows you to lease the ability to use it. And that's really the important part here. It's not so much that, you know, at first glance, you could say, oh, who cares? I'll just start up, you know, open up a burner Facebook account, log into that and not worry about it. But I think the bigger picture issue is once you start letting companies get away with stuff like this, there there's a snowball effect that happens where, you know, a giant company like Facebook does this. So then let's say Microsoft and Sony a generation or two from now get together and say, you know what, that model's working. So let's require people to purchase a PlayStation 7 and Xbox Series Y or whatever the heck they're going to call it. You know, we'll, we'll require them to purchase the hardware and then there are no physical games. You could only rent them. And then once you've closed your account, then you no longer can play the games anymore. Um, imagine if that starts trickling down to everything in your life and you don't actually own anything anymore. You're just renting the ability to use it. So, you know, a lot of people just blow this off and, and even fellow nerds do, not understanding how important this all is. 
so while I could normally talk for a long time, I could probably do an entire podcast on this. And in fact, I would love to talk to a security expert and really sit down and talk about the very real fears of companies taking over like that. Uh, but I'll just say for now, uh, I'll keep it, you know, super short in interest of time and say that, you know, if you're one of those people that that's a white hat jailbreaker, I guess is probably the the easiest way to describe it. Keep doing what you're doing because we got to keep sending a message to these companies that saying this isn't going to work. You're not going to force us to do it your way. We, if we buy the hardware, we own the hardware, period. And, you know, get rid of all this other crap. So uh, awesome that a team of people are thinking about or are continuing to do this stuff. I hope we all think about doing this for any product that tries to lock itself down, but not from the interest of, oh, yeah, now I could steal software, just from the just from the point of it of saying, you know, we either own the hardware or we don't. So, you know, I wanted to keep it under three minutes just in respect, out of respect for everybody's time, but definitely expect some kind of follow-up podcast in the future with a security export expert that could explain to us exactly how this pertains to all of us, including retro gaming. Crix has just posted a couple of updates for the EverDrive N8 series of ROM carts. Uh, first of all, the Pro got that save game update that all of the other newer EverDrives have gotten. That means every time you go to the menu, it backs up the save file from the battery RAM into the SD card, uh, which is you know both helpful for people that transfer saves as well as good for people that don't want to worry about losing their save game if their EverDrive battery should die. Um, there's also a few changes to the original N8, but not the save game change. So, um, you know, while it's absolutely awesome of Crix to continue to update these things, he certainly doesn't need to. So I think it's, you know, we should all take a moment to reflect upon that. Um, I don't know if the older EverDrives are going to have the physical ability to have those save game updates. Now, I'm, I'm just making the statement i know nothing technically about this so um i just i don't know if the reason crix hasn't implemented it is because of time or because it's just not able to but i it, if it's possible it is a cool feature that i would like to see on all of the everdrives but bottom line is you know they're good products and crix continues to upgrade them so i'm really happy that uh, to, to see all these cool things being added to it and speaking of EverDrives, Alex, aka Arcade TV, just launched his website that hosts all of the different themes available for the Mega EverDrive Pro. Um, and I tried them out and absolutely love it. I think this is kind of my, my favorite menu of any of the ROM carts because it retains the simplicity of the Crix carts, which I absolutely love. Just get me to the menu, get me to the game, and, and you know, forget about anything fancy. But it adds something kind of neat behind that. So it doesn't complicate it. It doesn't slow it down. You know, it's not like it suddenly takes a minute to load a folder. Everything works exactly the same, but there are some very cool backgrounds, some still, some animated, different colors. Um, and Alex has already added a ton of stuff to it. So if you have a Mega EverDrive Pro, I highly recommend going to Alex's site, scrolling through all of these and checking out which ones he has. Uh, and they're all free. So just load them all up see what you think of them and see if it's something that you know, you'd like to add to your EverDrive. But I think for me, the one I've been liking so far is the Sega Classics. I'm not sure if the, the floating background will eventually get on my nerves or anything like that, but I guess I'll, uh, I'll find out eventually. But so far, it's, um, it's just something that I think looks really cool. So thank you so much to Alex for doing all of this and then just giving it to everybody for free. That's really awesome. Uh, and instructions on how to load them and links to everything are all right in the main post. 
The game Metal Slug 6 for the Atomus Wave arcade platform was just ported over to the Dreamcast, and while in and about itself, that's a pretty awesome thing to talk about, what people have discovered seems to be even bigger of a deal than this. So just a little bit of background, the Atomus Wave was an arcade platform that was a collaboration between SNK, the Neo Geo makers, Sega, and Sammy. And people had known that the hardware between the Dreamcast and the Atomus Wave were very similar, but it looks like the developer Megavolt85 have stumbled across a way to port these because the arcade platforms are so similar to the Dreamcast that it's very tough to call it a port at all because it's kind of running on the same hardware. Um, so unlike rewriting a game for a different platform, I don't know. You know, I don't know if this is a terrible way to describe it, but it's almost more like reconfiguring a game. If you're a developer, please, you know, virtually smack me in the face for this one if I'm getting it wrong. But just in the interest of keeping it simple, um, I think that's what's going on here, and that's pretty awesome. That means that a pretty healthy list of arcade games for the Atomus Wave platform could all potentially be ported over to the Dreamcast. Uh, with some pretty neat games in there too. I, I, you know, I definitely would like to see Fist of the North Star and the Guilty Gear games, and you know, heck, even uh, there was a couple other ones, Ranger Mission. There's a few of them that I had heard of over the years and seen in the arcades, but I don't think I'd ever spent too much time with them. Um, and it's all a 480p platform as well, so you do get the full resolution that the Dreamcast outputs. So um, if this does just turn out to be one game. Still really freaking awesome. If you're a Dreamcast fan, definitely check uh, you know check this out. Figure out where to download it and try it out in your Dreamcast. Um, but if Megavolt 85 really did stumble on an easier way of, of porting these things over, that means we could get a pretty decent list of Atomus Wave arcade games now playable on the Dreamcast. So as always, thank you so much to everybody in the scene that just posts your work and shares it with everybody else. It's really incredible that we all get to experience this stuff with each other. Um, and it's just really cool to see people taking the time to do this. So I haven't tested it yet, but I just got my mode in and I plan on installing that in my Dreamcast fairly soon. And I will absolutely be trying this as one of the first games. An English translation has just been started for the Sega Saturn version of Castlevania Symphony of the Night. The developer Knight of Dragon has begun translating it, and while the game certainly does have its quirks, there are also a few things about the Saturn version that aren't really available on the PlayStation version or anywhere else, and it's something that I've certainly wanted to give a try one of these days. And although people had told me that I didn't need an English translation to be able to play it through, I do appreciate the story and I do appreciate some of the things about it. So uh, while this is definitely an alpha state and still in the midst of being translated, it's something, uh, it's a project that I will be following and that uh, I'll, I think I'll wait till this is done to play through the game. Now, at the moment, being an alpha and being that it's just started, there is no current way to implement the four megabyte uh, RAM cart enhancements to this that had been released a few months ago for the original version that allows you to have the expansion cart to speed up parts of the game and uh, make it a little bit smoother and faster loading depending on certain games and certain or certain parts of the game. Uh, at the moment, you can't use both at the same time, but hopefully by the time the translation is finished, you will be able to. And, you know, also just in general, I'm so appreciative of everybody that works on translations. I think it's so much trickier than many people think, um, 
but luckily more people appreciate it than you hear about. So that's why I always try to sing praise to everybody that translates because it's a lot of work and people really do appreciate it. So thanks very much to Night of Dragon for starting this project. Hopefully it'll, it'll go along pretty smoothly. Thanks to Ray for writing it up and, um, as soon as it's completed, uh, especially if you could implement the 4-meg patch onto it as well, I'll definitely be doing a live stream, and of course, we'll post more info on it. Marcus has just posted a firmware update for the open-source scan converter that implements a brand new menu system that I really liked a lot. Um, Ronnie had embedded a GIF in the post that gives a pretty good idea of what it's like, but for whatever reason, as cool as I thought it was when I saw it, when I was actually using it, it really felt easier as well. Um, basically, it displays all of the options at once, and then you could scroll through with the remote control and kind of change them that way. And the LCD screen on the OSSC itself... Uh, still works pretty much the same, but the on-screen display really feels a lot easier to use, and you have all the options right there. So even stuff that I, I use on a regular basis, I found myself getting to quicker because I saw all the options right there in front of me. So uh, definitely is my favorite part of the upgrade. Um, there's a few more things that Marcus added, but I haven't really had time to test any of them. Uh, and also, as a note, this is the same menu that Marcus just implemented in the CPS HDMI project. Uh, and while I'm going to be doing a full in-depth video on both the new firmware and that project in general very soon, um, the short version of it is even with using just the volume up and volume down buttons to change options, it's still a really easy menu to navigate. And I think it's just about as perfect as you could expect from an HDMI kit for arcade boards. I really, really liked it. Uh, I did a post a while back when he had added different resolution support, meaning you could now easily use it on 480p VGA monitors, as well as all different types of displays. Um, but I think this actually really rounds it up to be an awesome product. So if you uh, if you own an OSSC, definitely check out the firmware. Um, check out the video I did on it if you need to know how to update that firmware. And if you are interested in the CPS HDMI project, I'll have a lot more info on that in the coming weeks. Modern Vintage Gamer just posted a video that goes through the history of the Sony PlayStation's backward compatibility. And it's something that's been pretty important to its life cycle over the years because each time you've bought a new Sony PlayStation, you were able to utilize at least the last library of games that you owned for it up until the PlayStation 4 when things got weird. So uh, it's a pretty cool overview of it. I've heard that PlayStation 5 backward compatibility for PlayStation 4 games is supposed to be pretty good. I guess we'll all see pretty soon once the consoles are released to everybody. Um, but overall, I thought it was a really cool video. And if you just needed a refresher course of how the backward compatibility worked, this is definitely it. Uh, I do hope he follows up with one about the original Xbox consoles as well, unless he already did that. But uh, hey, repost it because it's perfect timing nowadays with the new consoles out there. And I would love to do a video at some point in the future, maybe a collaboration even with people that talks about just the history of backward compatibility as a whole throughout retro gaming, or I guess all of video gaming. Um, and I posted a quick little blurb about the Sega Master System and stuff like that. And uh, it's just something that was always pretty interesting to me. And I definitely remember one of my friends getting a Sega Genesis back in the day and talking about how important it was to him and how cool it was that you could play Sega Master System games on it, even though he still had a Sega Master System. So it's kind of a neat thing that people would probably be interested in. But anyway, if you'd like a short overview of how it works on the PlayStation, definitely check out MVG's video. 
John Lineman from DF Retro recently posted a video talking about two newer games for classic consoles, uh, Tanglewood and Xenocrisis. This video is actually a few weeks old. It was in my queue to post and then uh, it got lost in the mix, I guess. So my apologies for not talking about this sooner. But it was a mix of an interview and an overview of both of these games. And even though I'd already talked to Matt and uh, did a short not full playthrough, but at least a, a small playthrough of the game. Uh, and Ray actually even did a full review of Xenocrisis. Even kind of already seeing all that, I really enjoyed this video, and I especially liked the attention that was given to the development itself on both of these games. So um, if you're really interested in this stuff, even just the slightest bit, I highly recommend checking out John's video. Uh, and after watching, if you want to hear more, ch uh, check out both the review from Ray and my interview that I did with Matt. Um, I really enjoyed that a lot, by the way, and I really I don't like just talking about the hardware. I always really like highlighting the developers behind it, especially people that are doing things in very cool and unique ways. So uh, check out the video if you're interested, and uh, thanks so much to everybody involved in all these very cool projects. A new project was just started that allows you to build a do-it-yourself network or broadband adapter for the Sega Dreamcast. It's not a totally custom project yet, as it requires the original modem for its connector, as well as a communications cartridge module from the Atomus Wave arcade machine, as well as this do-it-yourself board that you need to assemble and plug into this. So I think it's an absolutely awesome project, um, but I do think the final goal would be something that people could just buy and plug into their Dreamcast to replace the network module. Um, now, there are still a lot of things you could do with it. You could still transfer saves back and forth. Uh, I believe you could play Fantasy Star online with um, the new servers that are homebrew servers that people have set up. But, it, you know, I think while projects like this are truly appreciated, and I think there's a bunch of Dreamcast hackers out there that are going to love to do it, I would really love to see something like this where you could just plug it in and plug in a network cable. Or even better, depending on, on the different needs that people have, maybe even just one that you plug in and it's a Wi-Fi module. So uh, if anybody out there is a creative hacker, maybe you could use this project to kind of bounce off of that and see where you can go with it. But I just definitely appreciative that somebody had started down this road of making it because I believe there was a bunch of different talk of replacement network adapters over the years, but I don't know if any of them actually became a thing. So um, thanks so much for Zrider, Xrider. I'm so sorry. I'm terrible at pronouncing everybody's screen names and names and stuff. Uh, but thank you very much for starting the project. Um, and I'm looking forward to see where this progresses to. I finally had a chance to review the Otaku 6-in, 3-out auto scart switch, um, and I did a pretty lengthy written review, but I didn't have time to do a video review, so I guess count the end of this podcast now as its video review. I do, unfortunately, have to start out by saying that it's not the best review, and I really hate giving any kind of negative review to any product, and I especially hate it when it's a company that I like who makes other products that I like. So, I mean, absolutely no disrespect to Maurice or Otaku Games or anything that they do. Um, I think the Switch has a ton of potential, but it's sync processing. Uh, pr brings up a pretty scary scenario depending on the cables that you're using. So at the moment, the conclusion of the review is that unless you know some very specific things about your setup and unless you could double check some voltages on your own, 
I wouldn't really recommend this. Uh, I would, however, if very strongly recommend if you're looking for an entry-level switch, their other six-in-one-out six model. Um, I talked about that in the SCART Switch Shootout, uh, put links to it everywhere, and it comes in two versions, one with just SCART and the other with SCART and RCA jacks. Uh, that makes it look like it's 12-in, two-out, but it's still six-in, one-out. You just have to choose which uh, which set of inputs you want for each button. Uh, but I really thought that was a great switch. Uh, it's still my favorite entry-level solution. And my favorite thing about it is that there are zero extra features. It is mechanically the same as if you were to unplug and manually replug all six devices into your target monitor or processor, which is exactly what I think you would want in a basic switch. No frills, just you know, a push-button way to switch between my consoles. So... Uh, I'll move on with the review now, but I definitely wanted to put it out there. That I still really like the company. This Switch has a lot of potential to be awesome in its next revision. And if you're looking for an entry-level solution, they already provide a great one. Overall, though, uh, here's how this new Switch works. It's got six SCART inputs, two SCART outputs, and then also RCA jacks as output. So RGBS left and right, which is handy if you're going directly into RGB monitors or something. Unlike their other switch, all three of these outputs can be used at the same time, and this was verified on a scope to make sure there's no weirdness with the voltage. Um, it also is powered by your console's SCART cable or an external power device, and you could toggle that with a yellow push button. So depending on the consoles that you're using, uh, you know, if you got Genesis, Master System, Super Nintendo, um, everything should probably work just fine without any AC adapter plugged in. It certainly did for me. Uh, there are other consoles out there where maybe if it had a custom RGB mod, voltage might not be included in the cable. Um, so, or maybe there are a few consoles out there that don't have enough power on their voltage line to support something like this. So if that's the case, you could always just use the external AC adapter option, which it doesn't come with, but I think it's compatible with, uh, you know, some pretty decent cheap ones. Um, some other good things about this, uh, auto switching worked pretty seamlessly as long as only one console was plugged in at a time, which I'll get more into that in a minute. And there was very, very little signal degradation to the point where playing normally on an average monitor or flat panel, I don't think you would really see any signal difference. Um, you know, it would be one of those things where if you were doing side-by-side -side comparisons for a video, you know, you might notice, but overall I thought it did a pretty good job of keeping the, the look of it the same. It certainly didn't add any interference or do anything crazy. But there were some issues with it, uh, and the, the one dangerous one involves the sync voltage output. So just to kind of to go through the two different issues, the much, the much lesser issue is that when I plugged in a console, I believe it was a Sega Genesis, um, pretty much stock, I plugged that directly into the, my oscilloscope, and it read 364 millivolts on the sync line. And for the record, for any of my fellow nerds, yes, it was properly 75 ohm terminated. I did all the stuff Steve taught me. Um, going from its the Otaku Switch's RCA output, that voltage went up to 700 millivolts, which is not abnormal. That's fine. It just means that there's some kind of sync processing signal going on, and that voltage is definitely safe to use on all SCART equipment. However, both SCART outputs showed 1.4 volts, which is right on that line of maybe too high for SCART equipment. So 
coming from voltage so low, it shouldn't really spike that high. And while I should be totally safe, I you know I even checked with Mike Chi, who said, yeah, it should be fine on the uh, RetroTank 2X SCART. It's just right on that line that made me think, what if your console just naturally has a, you know, a higher voltage on the sync line? What if you're using a super gun and you're getting 900 millivolts out? What would that final voltage be on the SCART output? So that kind of gave me a bit of pause. Um, the other thing, though, and here's the dangerous part. Anytime I plug something with a sync stripper in it, which it's not really needed these days, but um, you still will find SCART cables with sync strippers on the sync line. Um, I plugged that directly into the scope uh, and read 525 millivolts, totally fine. But through the SCART output of the Otaku switch, that same 500 millivolts is now 3.5 volts, which would surely kill whatever switch or whatever SCART equipment you're going to fairly quickly. Um, once again, properly terminated. I verified by taking the terminations off and watching the voltage, you know, skyrocket even higher. So that's a safety issue that if you don't know exactly the voltage that your cables are outputting and you don't have a way to verify it, then it's kind of dangerous to use this because you might not know what you're getting. Um, if you're somebody that has a scope and you could double check all this stuff and you know you just want a, a cheap auto-switching SCART switch, go for it. Absolutely fine. Uh, but I would absolutely keep that in mind uh, if, you're, if you're not somebody that has the ability to test, which is most of us, to be honest. Um, or copy the exact same setup somebody else has. You know, Make sure you have the same cables from the same vendor. If somebody else checks, it should be fine. And in fact, I, I sent this switch to recommend uh, for further testing, and he actually has a setup that would be totally safe with this. The other problem I ran into raid did not run into is that when i had my playstation one plugged into it the moment i plugged in a different console uh, a bunch of interference came on the screen and in this still image you could just kind of see that it's darker but you can't really tell that there's some weird ghosting patterns going across it as well it's very noticeable in video but in the still image not so much um, I tried two different PlayStations, but both were 5501s. I think I tried three different cables, uh, including with and without the proper capacitors in there, just to make sure. And I also tried plugging in the power and toggling the switch, uh, you know, the, the power selector switch, and it still did it. However, Maurice could not uh, reproduce this at his lab, the maker of the switch, and it did not happen on Ray's either. So... I don't know what that is. I'd like to kind of chase down what the problem is and see. Uh, but that's definitely something else to note is if you're using a PlayStation 1, that might be an issue. And also, powering on more than one console at a time, uh, that would cause interference, but it also might be kind of dangerous because uh, if both are powered on at the same time, uh, I guess the best way to describe it is with just scope plots and that you know, it, here's showing both one color and sync uh, with just one console powered on, but two consoles plugged in. And then you power on that second console and the sync stays the same, but the color voltage dropped, which kind of means that it's putting double the load on. So it's, uh, I don't know how dangerous that is. Maybe it's not dangerous at all. Uh, maybe it's one of those things where you turn it on and you go, oh, crap, but, you know, I hit the second power button and you turn it right back off and there's zero danger. It's just not 
good. So, uh, and especially wouldn't be good as if you, you know, accidentally left two on and walked away. That's definitely not a good thing. I think that's more concern for your consoles than anything else. Um, and if that were my only complaint, I really wouldn't make too big of a deal. But combining with the issue I had with PlayStation 1, and especially the voltage issue, I don't really know if this is something I would be comfortable recommending at the time. Um, and, you know, like I had said in this post, respectfully, you get what you pay for with a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, I, I've always sung the Otaku basic switch praise because I do think it performs incredibly well for a super cheap switch. But this is why you spend 200 and something dollars on a G-Scart switch because these are just not issues that you ever run into ever. And I think there's even a slightly new revision coming that has the same functionality, but even a bit more protection built into it. So while I absolutely wish, uh, you know, the Otaku the best, I'm still a fan of their products. Um, I, I'm not really comfortable recommending this unless you really know exactly what your setup's like. Um, also, I am aware of a couple of different projects out there to try to find a, a sync stripping circuit that's more compatible with those weird monitors that are out there. And I'm being sent one for testing uh, pretty soon, actually. And that will be an open source project. So if the test bed that I'm getting sent works fine, I'll absolutely forward that project over to Maurice and it's open source. Uh, he could feel free to in integrate that right in. And that would be a pretty cool way to, to try and solve this. I'm not sure how that works with dual or triple output, but I guess that's up to him to figure out. So overall, you know, I, I mean no disrespect in the negative review. I, I'm a fan. I know I'm probably sounding like a broken record at this point, but I just think it's a very cool switch that has a lot of potential and it's not quite there yet from a safety perspective. So um, if you want more info on all the other switches that I do like, um, the G-Scart, the Ashen, and the original Otaku switch, which is still available, are definitely my favorites depending on what different needs that you have. So... Uh, you know, thanks very much to them for sending me one. And unlike certain other companies, Maurice is still responding to my emails. So uh, it's it's good to know because I, I certainly wouldn't want to, you know, I, I just I really like the company and I really like their other products. So I wish them the best. Um, and hopefully a Rev 2 will be out eventually that fixes some of these issues. Well, that's it for this week. No extra announcements or anything else. Just wanted to say thank you to everybody that watches and listens, and especially thank you to everybody that supports on platforms like Floatplane and Patreon, because your support is what's keeping all of this stuff going. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week.